0: Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Ferisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at Vibysmo HCP.com. That's V A B Y S M O HCP.com.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. My name is Shrutiara Pally from the Emory Eye Center in Atlanta. Today, I'm joined by Vadehi Didania from NYU Langone in New York City. Hi, thank you for having me. And also Dr. Rebecca Soros from the Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston.
0: Great to be here. Thanks so much.
1: And So today, we're going to be discussing a paper titled The Outcomes of Intentionally Suspending Treatment in Eyes with Advanced Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration, which was published by Katherine All et al. and recently published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in July of 2023. But Dehi, would you mind summarizing this paper for us?
2: Yeah, so this is a retrospective cohort study of patients um, from the retina service of the Wales Eye Hospital, and it was performed over an eight-year period between January 2013 and October 2021. And what they looked at was they considered visual acuity and OCT outcomes for certain patients experiencing physician-directed suspension of anti-VEGF treatment for advanced neovascular AMD. The Some of the criteria that they included for this was low visual acuity, so vision worse than 2400, and history of at least three prior injections um, prior to the suspension. They compared the visual acuity and OCT characteristics at the time of treatment suspension and every six months for up to 24 months post-treatment suspension. And what they found was that there was no significant change in the mean central foveal thickness, the greatest lesion diameter or thickness, or in the visual acuity of patients who suspended treatment over that 24-month period. They did find that 7.5% of patients restarted treatment, although a good number of them did so after the two-year period ended where they continued to follow them. And this was still with a mean time of 977 days, which is just over or about rather three years. So um, they concluded that physician-led suspension of anti-VEGF treatment may be appropriate in patients with advanced neovascular AMD and low visual acuity. And because some patients did restart treatment after the two-year suspension, they suggested that eyes do continue to be monitored for disease progression throughout the treatment suspension period.
1: That was a really excellent summary. Thanks so much. Rebecca, before we go to the break, can I ask what are some of your initial responses to this paper, particularly any limitations that you saw or what you would take towards your practice or maybe not apply towards your practice patterns?
0: Yeah, I thought this was a really nice paper about a cohort of patients who we generally don't see a lot of data on. I thought it was very important in the um, discussion section that they sort of discuss this cohort of patients uh, often excluded from clinical trials. So I thought it was it was nice to see sort of what happens when you take these patients off of anti-VEGF. Um, some of the limitations that I thought were, were fairly big was that it's a small retrospective study, um, and it's sort of physician-led reasons for taking patients off of um, anti-VEGF. So um, there's definitely not an algorithm or protocol that physicians um, followed to take those patients off of anti-VEGF. So there's probably a lot of um, selection bias and variability in that. Um, I also think uh, a pretty big limitation um, in this group of patients is that there's so much imprecision in testing visual acuity and visual function in visions worse than 2400. And so I think you probably have a lot of variability even in that small cohort of patients with worse vision. So I think there's more to be done, more to be known about this group of patients who are worse off. And I also think um, more to be known about patients who you maybe need to restart on anti-VEGF when they recur. So basically different ways of measuring function. But I think overall it it sort of reinforces what I do in my own clinical practice, which is, um, you know, once I feel that a lesion is very inactive for a long time and or a patient has a significant amount of discoform scarring that's sort of limiting the vision, limiting our improvement, um, and they're sort of reaching that threshold, I often will have a discussion about the you know, futility or, or limited utility of treatment. And together with the patient, we can often decide to to come off the medication. This makes me feel more safe to do that.
1: These are really excellent points. Thanks so much. Vedahi, do you have any thoughts before we transition to the break about Rebecca's points? Yeah,
2: Rebecca brought up all really great points. And one that I wanted to kind of explain upon a little more was in this study, while they included patients with visual acuity of 2,400 or worse, um, many of them were counting fingers or worse. So to Rebecca's point, it's really hard to um, find nuances in that visual acuity. And so if you're counting fingers before the treat or at the time of treatment suspension, and at the end of the 24 months, is there could still be a scale of that, although it's hard to measure. Um, The other thing was, I I do think it was good that they had this limited criteria for inclusion. I think that it allowed them to lump the patients appropriately because if they had broadened the criteria, then the results may not have been as they were and it might not necessarily, um, it would increase the confounding factors rather with the data.
1: That's fantastic. All right, well, now we're going to head into our break, and when we return, we'll have a more in-depth discussion on this paper and our practice patterns.
0: Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Vibismo, ferisimab S-V-O-A. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vibysmo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O. Dash HCP dot com.
1: Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. Now let's get into a longer discussion about the paper. Rebecca, to start off, I was going to ask you, how do you treat or approach treatment suspension in patients with neovascular AMD? What's your personal cutoff or what do you wait to hear from the patient?
0: Yeah, I I sort of reserve it um for patients who I can sort of tell are reaching a threshold where they are no longer um, invested in the treatment anymore. And what I mean by that is sometimes I feel like the patient will bring up just really, you know, they're continue, they continue to be frustrated by a persistent visual limitation at home. And they sort of we sort of get into that conversation about them asking about like when is this gonna get better? Is this gonna get better? I'm really not seeing any difference. Like, what are we doing this for? I think oftentimes I let patients sort of lead it. Um, because I I think oftentimes that will allow me to see, you know, how um how much the burden of coming in for treatment is affecting their life versus how um you know, how um, uh, persistent they are about continuing treatment. So I think, I think oftentimes I don't bring it up until I'm sort of sensing from the patient that they are having trouble with um, complying with the injections. And then at that point, we sort of discuss, you know, um, you know, what is it really doing for them? Whereas I think a lot of patients have a lot of confusion about what is the end stage for macular degeneration. So that often gets thrown into the conversation as well. I think some people have never been explained, you know, this is not like a generally people don't go black blind from this is sort of how I describe it. Um, this is, you know, a centrally blinding condition, but peripheral vision is maintained. And often when you get to about count fingers, that's sort of where it limits, you know, it's sort of limited for patients. And I think when they hear that they sort of, there's sometimes a lot of relief um, that patients will experience in like, oh, okay. So maybe I am at the limit here and maybe it's okay that we don't have to strive to continue to do this, you know, every 12 weeks for the rest of my life sort of thing. I think that's sort of a relief for a lot of patients. And so when it sort of gets to that conversation, I, you know, I think we both kind of come to the conclusion pretty easily that it's okay to, to just sort of let things be and we'll still monitor it closely. I think that's sort of how it's often a a more patient led discussion.
1: You know, I agree with everything that you said. I think for me, it's looking to see what the burden is on the patient, but not only them, but their family members that are coming with them every time. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like it's really taxing on the whole ecosystem of this patient. Um, I'll start bridging that topic of, you know, if you're not really seeing an improvement, what are we doing for you? Mm-hmm. And Videhi, I'd love to hear what you kind of use as your cutoff as well.
2: Yeah, so I don't necessarily have a, a cutoff per se. Um, when I'm considering it in a patient, I look at, first I look at their OCT. Do they have disciform scarring? And what has it looked like over the past few treatments and with treatment? And I also look at their vision. So I will take a moment to just track back their vision for the last year or two years and see has it changed or how has it changed with the frequency of injections? And if I see very little to no change, that for me, even if it's a 2350 eye, regardless of the intervals, I may talk to that patient um, about considering stopping treatment uh, a lot of what we talked about is treatment burden, but the other things to consider, while they don't necessarily affect each individual patient or just overall healthcare care costs, um, you did mention, Shruti, the burden on the family members. So I do think it's a little bit more than just individualizing it to the patient and just saying, well, this isn't necessarily helping you at this time or you're not really improving it. You haven't been improving. Um, let's consider stopping it.
1: And Vadehi, that was a great point that you brought up about the cost and the healthcare um, dollars that we spend on this. Do you often have patients who are sort of at their end stage of therapy that are asking for the newest or most expensive drugs? And how do you counsel them on that? To be honest, I haven't had very many patients ask that.
2: I've Often they've already gotten to that point, just given how many of us treat. We start off with bevacizumab and then we move to, one or through the other three or four agents that we have out there available to us. And so by that point, I think most patients have already tried that. I mean, if you look at this study, many of these patients had received a number of injections, 50 and upwards in a lot of them. And so within those injections, I'm sure these patients have used you know, the most expensive anti-VEGF agents. Um, when asked that, I explained to them that the agents overall do have similar efficacy. Um, they may have varying durability and also in different patients, some may be more effective than others, but that starting a new agent is not necessarily going to wash away that scar that they have there. And so there are certain factors that are limiting their vision. um, and And I get into that more with them to help them understand that it's not about, you know, having the most expensive medication or switching their medication. It's just about what's underlying,
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, One of my last questions was for Rebecca, you had talked about in our first section about some of the limitations of the paper, and we talked a little bit about how some of these patients are 2400 or worse. um, And you touched upon the point that it's hard to truly assess vision when it gets that bad. So are there other metrics that you use in your clinic to assess patient's visual acuity, or their ability to complete ADLs or activities of daily life?
0: Yeah, um... Uh, a comment first about the paper is, um, you know, even though it's it's a very imprecise measure, what I do like about the measure that they have in clinic rather than doing like microperimetry or something like that is that it is a real world analysis. You know, it's something that we all, you know, it's the way that we all measure vision in clinic. Um, but one other way that I sort of get at that is is asking patients about their reading or about seeing people's faces or, um, you know, I think that's a better idea of like how they're functioning visually. The other thing I like to ask before I even get into discussion of like futility of treatment is whether or not they ex- still experience sort of a wearing off effect at the end of, of a treatment cycle. I think I think sometimes even in my patients who are count fingers, if they tell me, oh, yeah, I did feel like maybe there was a little bit of a decline, like I felt like I was ready for an injection, then I feel like in those patients, it helps me understand that even if I'm not asking the right questions about what their visual function is, they are noticing a visual function change right at the end. And so for those patients, I tend to recommend that we stay on injections, at least as they're experiencing that sort of ebb and flow of the medication.
1: Yeah, that's great. Vadehi, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Nope, nothing to add. I Sometimes if I'm suspecting that I'm gonna stop you know, or, or approach them about discontinuing treatment in the few visits before, similar to what Rebecca mentioned, I will ask them to pay attention to any changes that occur over the three-month period or the two-month period that they have in between and to see what they say.
1: Perfect. Well, that concludes our new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. Thanks to our audience and our incredible panelists for joining us. And audience, stay tuned for further episodes.